Welcome to the Gregory House Podcast. This is Leadership Lessons from the Life of David by Father Steve Williamson. Well, I, go, I guess we'll go ahead and get started, so come on in, you all. If you don't have a, an outline, it's, um, um, it's right there in the, in the middle. Um, the outline has, as a, as a sort of guiding verse for this whole talk, Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1-1, I think, is the placeholder before uh, something is inserted in that spot. But let's see real quickly. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And oh, my heavens, sometimes David could be very earthly. (laughs) There we go. All right. Um, uh, Sorry, we're going to talk today about uh, leadership life lessons from David. Let me just start by saying thank you to Father Matt Woodley, who stepped in last week, um, last minute, because of our little family COVID scare. Um, So um, my apologies if Matt's usual sort of like 9.8 out of 10 rating on his talks went down to more like a 9.6 because he had less time to prepare. Um, uh, Forgive me, that is all my fault and not his. Um, I would suggest, I think for the fun of it, since we're going to kind of go through the life of David, um, mostly out of First uh, and Second Samuel, I just recommend grabbing a Bible, because I think it's just kind of fun to, to float through and we'll read different passages. But I am going to start this morning reading from our family's very well-used edition of the Jesus Storybook Bible. I absolutely love this thing, and I love the story of David and Goliath, so that's where we're going to start. Um, I'm going to make it, let's make it liturgical here, so I'll say a paraphrased and delightful retelling from the first book of Samuel. All right, here we go. The Young Hero and the Horrible Giant. God's people had some scary enemies. But the Philistines were the scariest of them all. And now the Philistines had come to fight them. The Philistines had a secret weapon called Goliath. Goliath was a terrifying soldier and, worst of all, a giant. A giant so strong and so tall and so scary that no one had ever been able to fight him and live to tell the tale. So... There they were, the Philistines standing on one top of the top of one hill, God's people standing on top of the other. Every day, Goliath came out and shouted, Send your best soldier to fight me. If he wins, we will be your slaves. But if I win, you will be our slaves. No one spoke. No one moved. Chickens, Goliath bellowed. Your God can't save you. I'll rip your heads off and have you on toast. Side note, my kid's favorite line in that whole book. His beady, greedy eyes glowered at them hungrily from under his horrible helmet, as if any minute he really might just gobble them all up. And he laughed his terrible laugh. Ha, 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 ha. It boomed, echoing horribly around and around the dry, dry valley. Well, Goliath might just as well have been a green, slimy monster with three heads because God's people froze with fear. Their eyes glazed over, and they turned deathly pale. They knew if someone didn't do something quick, 
if someone didn't save them. But God would do something. He would send someone to save them. Now, you remember that David was the youngest son of Jesse? Well, his brothers were soldiers in the army. One day, when David brought his brothers their lunches, he saw Goliath, and he saw how scared everyone was. Don't be afraid, David said. I'll fight him for you. You're only a little shepherd boy, the king said, and Goliath is a great soldier. How will you fight him? God will help me, David said. So the king gave David his royal armor to wear, but it was too heavy and too big, and David couldn't even walk. I won't need this, David said. Instead, David picked out five smooth stones from the stream. One, two, three, four, five. Took his slingshot and walked towards Goliath. Step, step, step. Goliath walked towards David. Thud, thud, thud. You? Goliath peered down at the small boy. I'm little, David shouted up to him, but God is great. Goliath laughed an even terribler laugh than usual. Ha, 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 it went. With just one swing of his giant sword, Goliath could finish the boy off. But David kept going. It isn't how strong you are or how many swords and spears you have that will save you. It is God who saves you. This is God's battle, and God always wins his battle. David put a stone in his sling, swung it around, and let it go. The little stone flew, whizz, like a bullet through the air, and struck Goliath, thud, right between the eyes. Goliath stopped laughing. He stumbled and staggered and crash, fell dead. When the Philistines saw Goliath was dead, they ran away. And when God's people saw them running away, they cheered. God had saved his people. David was a hero. Many years later, God would send his people another young hero to fight for them and to save them. This hero would fight the greatest battle the world has ever known. The paraphrased and delightful retelling of the word of the Lord. Awesome. Um, I love the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's got this awesome messianic aspect to it, always looking forward to the coming of the Christ, the Messiah. And David is a type of Christ. And um, there's so many things to love about David. As, as Scripture tells us, David was a man after God's own heart. As the Lord says to Samuel in uh, chapter 16, verse 7, when Samuel is coming to anoint one of Jesse's sons, he says, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Talking about a different son. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So David's been known as a man after God's own heart. Um, There's so many stories of his bravery, his integrity, his mercy. 
When I was younger, I was definitely totally enamored with David. Um, as a kid, I was obsessed with David and Goliath, and my boys have all been too. They memorized this story from the Jesus Storybook Bible, and they would go around and do their own uh, retelling out of it. And then as a young man and a, a, a new worship leader, I was enamored with David the psalmist and his love for the Lord expressed in the psalms and in, and in worship. Um, I have to admit, though, in more recent years of my life, I might say that David and I had a bit of a breakup. And I, I found it harder to engage David as I was growing in my own leadership. Um, I found it more difficult to handle David's incredible failures. Um, as I started to get to the age where I had leadership responsibilities, where the potential to fail in miserable ways was more pronounced and there for me personally. I mean, David's failures are often huge and egregious. He doesn't usually fail halfway. He kind of fails all the way when he fails. Uh, but during the last few months, amidst the crisis and challenges we've been experiencing um, in our diocese and here at Res, I've gone back to the simple process in my own devotional life of just reading on a daily basis the lectionary readings. And during the last couple of months, it was going through First and Second Samuel. And so right in this time where I'm learning and experiencing new things about being a leader in a hard season, the Lord's got right in front of me, once again, the life of David. And the Lord started speaking to me through the life of David. David has these seasons of incredible faith. And he also has these seasons of massive failures. Um, and this got really personal for me because some of the biggest mistakes happen to David when he's no longer this young, up-and-coming leader. Neither is he yet this leader who is almost done, but he's right in the heart of his leadership years. He's got experience behind him and experience before him. And I totally identify with that exact season. Um, David makes some of his worst decisions in this season of life where his leadership role has been firmly established. And it's at that point where we see things like complacency and pride and laziness and disengagement. And it's those little seeds that lead to some really disastrous consequences. But I have this time, as I went through First and Second Samuel in my daily prayer life, I, I've been looking at David with new eyes. As I've read and reread through the full record of David's life, I'm walking away with a different perspective. And it's this. If David is a type of Christ, first and foremost, then he clearly points to the need for a second David, if you will, the son of David, one whose bravery, whose integrity and mercy were never compromised. David points to our need for a Messiah. David points me to my need as a leader for a Savior. I've been watching David and realizing just how vulnerable to the same failures as a leader 
I am, that I need a Savior, that I need the Son of David. David's failures have also been revealing to me the extravagance of the Lord's mercy. I don't determine what can be redeemed. That's up to the Lord. And the level of imperfection the Lord can work with in someone will humble, who will humble him or herself and repent and return to the Lord is astounding. So from that perspective, I'm taking new insights from the life of David. Specifically, I'm taking lessons for a lifetime of leadership. Because one of the special things we get in the story of David is we get a picture of his whole life of leadership, basically from beginning to end. It's a really helpful, full perspective that I think sometimes we need because I think we often, as leaders, are very caught up in the season that we're in. And we can lose sight of what the Lord has done in and through us before that season and what he might be working now for his purposes in a season to come. But in David, we get a full picture. So I want to walk through some of those uh, lessons that I've been learning recently from the life of David. And I do think there's something in it for all of us, regardless of what season our life or our leadership are in. But before I do that, I want to just kind of start with a few high-level takeaways as kind of an overview before we step into each season and explore them individually. So first of all, I always love just having the opportunity to read through a whole section of Scripture telling a large story. So after I, after I did it, First um, and Second Samuel, um, day by day, I read them entirely back to back on a prayer retreat. It's always fun to just kind of see what pops out to you when you do that. And something hit me um, as I was doing that on my prayer retreat. And the first, it was this: it was David's leadership thrives when he looks to the Lord. We'll see so many examples of that in the story of David. And it crashes. You might say it crashes royally when he looks elsewhere, when he looks to himself, when he looks on his neighbor's rooftop. But David's leadership thrives when he looks to the Lord. Um, secondly, in the whole story of David, and I don't know why this has never hit me as as, as much as it hit me as I was walking back through it was, I think I'm most encouraged in the life and leadership of David in how it ends, how David's life and ministry finishes. We get the full time, lifetime of, of leadership in the story of David, and after seasons of incredible highs and epic lows, inspiring faith and disturbing failure, David finishes his race well. The story of David has been showing me personally what the end of a leader's life can look like when they keep turning and returning to the Lord. In seasons of fruit and in seasons of distress, in moments of success and failure, what's formed in the life of the leader and how it can finish when that leader, amidst success, amidst failure, keeps looking to the Lord. Um, I mentioned this to the staff in a previous devotional, but um, the pastor and leader, uh, Pete Scazzaro, uh, does a lot on leadership and healthy leadership. 
took this from another um, source, but um, basically the concept is your greatest decade of leadership will be in your 60s. Any, any amens, woot woots in the room? Yeah, there we go. And your second greatest decade of leadership will be your 50s. And your third will be your 70s. Um, and the concept is essentially that the Lord is often in the life of a leader forming through tests and trials and lessons and preparing them for, that, for those seasons of, of ministry. And I, I, think there's something, I think there's something in that, um, and I think there's something in that in the life of David. So that's my second one, is how David's... Um, I'm very encouraged by how his ministry and his, his leadership life finishes. And then my last one is, the Lord's perspective is so much greater than your current season or your most recent failure. I'm going to say it again because I like have to tell myself that on a regular basis. The Lord's perspective is so much greater than your current season and your most recent failure. So I do want to encourage you as we walk through this to certainly identify with the season of life that you feel like you're in as I've kind of broken it down in David's life and leadership. I think it's good for us to know the pitfalls and the opportunities that are there, but perhaps even more, what I would hope would happen as we kind of walk through this is that you'd also pull yourself out of the current season you're in. And just take a a broader picture at the Lord's perspective of a whole life of leadership. So I've broken it down into four seasons. This is just a Steve concept here, so we could debate how the, the accuracy of this or the viability of it, but um, helpful breakdown for me. And I kind of just took some age range guesses, somewhat applied to David, somewhat applied to us. But those four seasons I'm calling the youthful leader, the young leader, the established leader, and the finishing leader. I just want to walk through these with you guys and um, just observe what I see in David in these different seasons of his life and leadership. So in each section, I just kind of, as I break it down, give story highlights of the stories from the life of David that I think apply to that season. Won't necessarily um, talk about all of them, but just to give you a picture of how I'm kind of walking through the life of David. So in, um, in his youthful leader days. The story, the story highlights would be um, David anointed by Samuel. I just read from that passage to you. Um, David playing the harp for Saul, and, and then, of course, David and Goliath. So first, let's talk about what we see in David as a youthful leader, his faith qualities. What are those strengths um, and admirable qualities of faith we see in David? As I put it, I think we see an innocent and wholehearted confidence in the Lord. Um, to that end, I just want to read you some of the story from uh, 1 Samuel 17. Let's start in verse... Let's see, I'm going to start in verse uh, 34. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. 
And when there came a lion or a bear and took, um, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Grabbing a lion by his beard. Can you grab a bear by its beard? That's, that's just kind of an awesome mental picture. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. So we see David's confidence, and we see it, his confidence in the Lord. And David said, The Lord who delivered me out of the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Just popping down to uh, 45 and 47, what David actually says, uh, the Philistine says to, to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. So we see this confidence in the Lord that's almost unshaped and unformed by life experience beyond David's Bethlehem shepherding life. And there's just something so incredibly admirable about it. Um, he hasn't yet experienced, you know, um, things like betrayal and adult leadership failures and complicated, confusing um, relational interaction that might make him a little more cynical. He comes forward with what he knows and has absolute confidence in the Lord. I also think I just want to mention here with David's youthful um, confidence that his confidence in God allowed David to submit himself under Saul's leadership and not defy it. And we really see that, and we see that flow into David's um, next season of leadership as well. Um, it leads him to becoming Saul's top official, even as Saul was threatened by David, because David's confidence was so fully in the Lord that he could trust, he could trust the Lord's providence, the Lord's anointing, and the Lord's timing. Um, we see that. I just love an example verse of that. 18.5. We see David's success coming. Um, this is after he's defeated Goliath, and it says, and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So David's youthful confidence, David's um, confidence in the Lord led to giving him his first leadership opportunities. Leadership is often identified in that youthful leader stage, and the youthful leader needs that sort of naive, young confidence um, to step into leadership circumstances where, if they're honest, they don't actually know what they're doing. Um, and they ride on a lot of confidence in that um, in that season of their leadership development. 
Um, in each section, I also kind of wanted to highlight failure moments. One of the really fun things, I think, about the way that the story unfolds is in the youthful leadership days of David, we don't actually hear about any failures. Um, not that he was perfect at that point, but I, I love the picture, a beautiful way for the leadership story to begin. There is an innocence um, in, a, in a youthful leader um, who's yet to experience some of the hard circumstances that are often what precipitate failures in leadership. So as we just kind of look at this youthful leadership section of David, just my thoughts that youthful leadership is a time for innocence and for learning a wholehearted devotion and confidence in the Lord. And as we work with youthful leaders, I think that's something to disciple and encourage in them. From an earthly standpoint, you could say that a youthful leader is innocent enough to not even know that the hard things you are doing are hard. Uh, you don't yet understand how hard it is. Um, you might be more brave than you should be from an earthly perspective because you don't know any better. But from a kingdom perspective, I would say it's a time for a holy confidence unstained by the world. You have not yet experienced many hard things in life that often cause us to become hardened and cynical. Failure, unrealized dreams, betrayals, loss, brokenheartedness. This is a really important season in which leadership is recognized and developed. And the church needs youthful leaders. We need their confidence in the Lord. We need their creativity, their faith, their energy, their belief in what the Lord can accomplish. And it's also where next generation leaders are identified. All right, I want to move from youthful leader to young leader. So in the life of David, I kind of say that the, uh, the story highlights here for the young leader, David, is his leadership developing and his success growing as he leads the, um, the armies of Israel. Saul begins to get jealous. Um, and then we see that jealousy boil over and Saul begins his pursuit of David. And then David spares Saul's life twice. Those are awesome stories. And then finally, David, the young leader, flees to the Philistines. All right, so first, um, let's talk about the faith qualities we see in David, the young leader. Anointing comes from the Lord. This is, this is I just think, a hallmark of David's Leadership, And when David is really on, David does nothing without hearing from the Lord. And he also understands that even promises that the Lord has made to him are not up to him to fulfill, but they're up to the Lord, for the Lord to fulfill in his own time. And that's, I think, primarily seen in these stories of uh, Saul's pursuit of David and David's response. So popping over to 1 Samuel 24. I'm just going to read a little bit of this, starting at the beginning. 
when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day in which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And then David rose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. And then we see the interaction between David and Saul. And then we see a very similar um, story take place again just a couple chapters later. Notice in that passage that even though David has received promises of anointing from the Lord through Samuel, David doesn't take the making of those promises come to fruition into his own hands, and he doesn't even simply interpret circumstances like David's men, it's like, I mean, he, he's in the same cave as us. This has got to be the Lord. This is your opportunity. He doesn't take his friend's words as a word from the Lord. He's waiting to hear from the Lord. I think it's an interesting amount of faith David puts in anointing coming from the Lord, he recognizes that Saul has been anointed of the Lord, and he realizes it's the Lord's responsibility um, to bring to fruition his promises to David. Right alongside that anointing comes from the Lord faith quality, we see in David's young leadership seeking the Lord for guidance. There's a ton of examples of this in this season of David's life. Um, Almost exclusively, we see them laid out in battle scenes where the question is, is the Lord calling us um, to pursue our enemies? So just the first example, chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord. And that's a significant phrase. And I think as we go forward, we'll see where there's a shift in David's leadership and thinking that leads to some of his failure. But we see this phrase a ton in the life of David, especially in his young leadership days. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines. So we see multiple battle examples of that. This this does continue. We see this reappear in David's uh, leadership in later seasons of life as well, but it's a very strong faith quality of his as a young leader. I think perhaps the most significant um, failure moment we see um, in David um, in this young leader stage is 
his fear, his not trusting the Lord, and ultimately then escaping uh, to go live amongst the Philistines. And the result of that um, is that he comes really, really close to actually joining uh, the Philistine armies and actually fighting against Israel. And what's interesting about that, um, chapter 27, hold, hold that phrase, and David inquired of the Lord. When David, this chapter 27 is where David flees, and it begins with this phrase, then David said in his heart. So after, after all these examples of David facing dangerous challenging, difficult circumstances where it regularly has this phrase, and David inquired of the Lord. I think it's interesting that the storyteller tells us in this case, David said in his heart, David looked to himself, he saw the fear there, and he said, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. So, as we just look at the young leadership season for David, I just think that young leadership is a time for keeping our fear and our ambition in check by seeking and waiting on the Lord for his timing. So here you see all these new leadership opportunities that David's been given. And when he holds his ambition in check, when he seeks the Lord, when he waits for the Lord and his timing, the Lord shows his favor to David. And when da if David tries to force something, if David turns to himself and is in fear, that's when his failure comes. Forcing something to happen or escaping out of fear compounds the problem. The challenge of the season of a young leader is waiting on the Lord, trusting in the Lord, and trusting in the Lord's timing. And oh, how the church needs young leaders, leaders who are just stepping into challenges, new leadership roles, learning, learning how tricky and complicated leadership can be. And the church has a call to foster and disciple young leaders towards the kind of waiting and trusting in the Lord, while rightly encouraging the desire and the ambition of a young leader to seek the Lord. It is a time for leadership. It's a time for leadership growth, but for patience in the Lord, for his timing, and for his anointing. Um, and that's something that I think any of us who have been a young leader, any of us who are young leaders can identify with. The Lord has placed a desire on our hearts. He knows, he, we know he's called us to leadership in the church. And we even have somewhat of a picture of what that might look like. But young leadership days are a time where the Lord shapes and forms us and teaches us to hear his voice as we wait patiently for him and as we seek him in our leadership. It's a season that always feels like it lasts a little longer than we want it to. And I think that's very much in the Lord's design. All right, I want to move to established leader. This is definitely the biggest, longest season. I think that's 
the way the Lord designed it. It's the biggest, longest part of uh, the story of David. We also see it's the section of his life where we get to hear about some of his most massive failures. He also has the highest levels of responsibility. So story highlights abound. There's just a whole bunch, so I won't sit here and and read through them for you. I want to start with... um, It is a lot of the stories we hear about David as an established leader recognize his shortcomings and his failures. But I want to start with a faith quality that I think um, is really significant, and it starts in this season of David's leadership, and it ultimately leads to David finishing his leadership life well. So that faith quality, I would say, is a joyful acceptance of what is determined for the next generation. Um, And I want to read to you, now we're over in 2 Samuel, the chapter devoted to David's, the book devoted to David's kingship. Um, 2 Samuel 7. Um, And this is, if I got my passage right, this is after David is told, it's Nathan, right? Yeah, David is told Nathan that he wants to build the temple And then Nathan has heard from the Lord, and he has a word from the Lord for David that it won't be David, but his son who builds the temple, um, but that the Lord will build a house for David, and his son, a son of his, will sit on the throne forever. And we get David's response. So I'm, I'm moved by the fact that the Lord has actually told David no. What the desire of your heart was, I actually intend for the next generation. But the Lord has also given David a promise for the generations to come. And I'm moved by David's, David's heartfelt response of thanksgiving, starting in, in, in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house? that you have brought me thus far. And this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we've heard with our ears. So, perhaps the greatest faith quality in David's established years is receiving God's no, God's promise for future generations, accepting it and receiving it with thanksgiving. All right, let's talk ah, briefly about the failure moments of, of David in this season. So first, you have David and Bathsheba. Here's what I want to do with these failure moments of David. I actually want to focus on, as I read them, how I see them begin. What's sort of the, the seed that germinates into 
massive failure for David in these different circumstances. So with David and Bathsheba, I would say it was a lazy and complacent leadership decision by David. So I don't have the passage right in front of me, but I think it's in the springtime when kings go off to war. But David stayed behind. So David's leadership and his kingship has been established. And as a king, he should be out on the battlefield with his armies. But he's at home. He sent his other leaders out. He's grown complacent and comfortable in his leadership. And laziness leads to temptation. And temptation leads to an abuse of power. And abuse of power leads to cover-up. And ultimately to murder. So David and Bathsheba. Then there's Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom. That whole mess. And what we see in that story with David is David's made aware first of what Amnon does. And then David's made aware of later in the story, it's a long one, David knows fully what's in Absalom's heart and then Absalom's decisions of retribution. And in both cases, David abdicates his leadership authority as a father, as a king. David does not exercise discipline. And it ultimately, of course, leads to rebellion and civil war. Okay, and then the third one is the census, which is like the really weird one um, and sometimes confusing. I would say perhaps the impetus for David when it comes to the census, what's the thing that started it off was pride. I think it was forgetting that the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, were God's people. Everything that David had been given, everything that they had been given, had come from the Lord. And David wants a count. He wants to know how many people are in his kingdom. So once again, David's eyes, instead of being focused on the Lord, are focused out on everything he feels like he has. So laziness, complacency, abdicating leadership authority, pride. Sometimes when we look at the end result of David's leadership failures, we can get disconnected. And that's kind of that breakup moment I had with David, like, oh my goodness, he, he failed so miserably. But when I actually look back at the root cause of David's failures, laziness, complacency, abdicating leadership authority, lack of discipline, pride. I'm reminded and I'm sobered by where seemingly small, sinful habits can lead to leadership failure, especially as a leader. Did you have a question? Oh, we need, a, we need the microphone thing. 
So in 2 Samuel 24, it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, <laughs> Go and number Israel and Judah. Not to say that, you know, there aren't those other things that you're talking about involved, but could you help explain that? <laughs> Isn't it, was that 2 Samuel? 2 Samuel and yeah, I, 24. And 1. then I think in um, 1 Corinthians, it says, it says, uh, uh, a devil or a Satan was given to David, right? So it is confusing. Anyone want to jump in on that one? Dr. Abernathy, maybe? Dr. Abernathy you want to throw something our way with that, that bad boy? <laughs> I'll pass. I'll, yeah. I'll leave. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'll venture into an answer as I was reading commentary on, on the difference between the both, the two of them. Um, certainly the Lord's allowance for David's pride and leadership failure to get in the way and to make this um, incredible mistake. Um, Steve, I'll, I'll jump in. Please do jump in. Um, is, your, is your question the difference between the versions? Uh, not so much. Or, I think it's the question of, of what I'm saying about David's pride getting in the way in relationship to the Lord inciting oh, in David sure, something. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. And even the response of the people, they were really surprised and saying, King, don't do this. Don't do yeah. this. It, there, there's, and God, when he even, say, hardens Pharaoh's heart, that doesn't mean that Pharaoh's acting, or God's acting against Pharaoh's own wiring. Pharaoh already had a hard heart. Pharaoh already was disposed away from mm -hmm. the Lord, but God was acting in conjunction with that. So I, I think we, what Steve is saying about pride, I think could still stand in conjunction with God acting in the midst of that as well. So, I want to pair, um, thank you, great question and great answer. Um, I want to pair these failure moments and the reminder that I'm susceptible to the exact same root causes as a leader that we see in David with the redemption moments we see in this season of David's life as well. First of all, here's what I want to learn from David in these redemption moments. I want to be open to the full exposure of my sin like David was. In the case of David and Bathsheba, let's remember that David, the king, receives Nathan's rebuke. And then in the case of the census, David receives Joab's rebuke, and in both cases, David repents. And I've been reflecting on David's repentance, and I've been reflecting on it as a leader. So first of all, we know from Scripture, Psalm 51 is a direct response, right, to Nathan's rebuke of David from the Lord after David and Bathsheba. 
And I wonder when David wrote Psalm 51. I wonder if he wrote it during or right after his seven straight days of fasting and repentance. I think it's interesting, right? Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Something struck me, because for us, we're reading the Bible, we're reading the story of the life of David, we're reading Psalm 51. This is, this is Israel's hymn book, their psalm book, and it says in there, hey, David wrote this after he went into Bathsheba, and Nathan challenged him and rebuked him, and this is his psalm of repentance. I can't think of a really good parallel like if, oh, Lord, have mercy came up every time and it said, by Steve Williamson, after Matt Woodley came to him and rebuked him because he stole a soda from the local convenience mart. I don't know. Just the idea, that's not a good parallel, but just to say, but if I gave a good parallel, it'd be offensive. To say that David, as a leader, has his sin fully exposed to those he's leading. It's in their hymn book. It's right there for the, the people of Israel to read. It's a reminder that us as leaders, both our failures, our shortcomings, and our heart of repentance are on display for those we lead. David also chooses to fall into the hand of the Lord. Yes, in repentance, but we also see when he's given options after the census, his response is to take the option, which is in essence taking something directly from the Lord. Let me fall in the hands of the Lord as opposed to in the hands of men. So leaders, established leaders, they're going to fail. You're going to fail in your season as an established leader. You're going to fail multiple times. I think the lesson we have from David is not to compound the problem, but to choose as he did to fall into the hands of the Lord. Who do you want to be your judge as a leader? Let's be clear, we're going to fail. Who ultimately has judgment over your failures and who actually offers redemption for your leadership? And we also see in this season of David's life how God is faithful and does not break his promises to David about the kingdom. So even amidst his massive mistakes and failures, God is faithful to his promise to David. There's consequences, but there's also redemption. So the church, of course, also needs established leaders who've been raised up to lay down their lives for the church. Be reminded of that leadership lesson. When David looked to the Lord, he succeeded. There's such a danger for an established leader to stop looking to the Lord. Either because they're trusting in their own strength and gifts, they feel like they don't need the Lord anymore, the urgency doesn't feel like it's there because now they're established, they have the position, they have the earthly authority. They forget who established them as a leader in the first place. 
They also can stop looking to the Lord because they simply disengage. The ambition wanes. They're bored. They're exhausted. They stop looking to the Lord. But established leaders can continue to grow. Established leaders can grow and learn from their mistakes. They can, by example to the people of God, show what it looks like to turn and return to the Lord when they do make mistakes. It's the most visible season of your leadership. It's also where the season of your leadership where you're going to have the hardest challenges in front of you. So you will make mistakes. So it, it goes without saying that failure is, well, it goes with saying failure is not failure. Failure is part of the established leader's life. And perhaps the more significant question is, how do you respond in those moments of failure? All right, I want to move to finishing leader. My story highlights uh, for, how are we doing on time? I don't have any idea. Oh, okay, we're almost there. Sorry, didn't realize we had not use that much time already. The main story here is David preparing Solomon and the people for Solomon's reign and for the building of the temple. So I'm going to do this a little more rapid fire. I didn't realize we're that far. Um, I encourage you sometime. It feels like it would be a bit of a task. I was incredibly blessed by just reading through First Chronicles, the last, uh, what is that, seven or eight chapters. If you even just look at the headings of what David's doing to prepare the people of God um, in, first, in first Chronicles there at the end. Let me just pop over there real quick. Boop, 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 boop. Sorry. So the headings themselves show you what David's doing. David prepares for temple building. Solomon charged by David to build the temple. David organizes the Levites. David organizes the priests. David organizes the musicians. Divisions of the gatekeepers. Treasurers and other officials. Military divisions. Leaders of tribes. David's charge to Israel. David's charge to Solomon. Offerings for the temple. And in that portion, David gives of the kingdom's treasury. David gives of his personal treasury. And then David calls for the people and the leaders of the people to give from their own treasury. So even though the Lord said to David, you will not build me a temple, it's for your son to do, David's response was, I will do everything in my power to set up my son and the kingdom that he, that, that he is going to lead for success. Receiving and celebrating the Lord's plan for the next generation and investing in it. That's the faith quality we see in David. The Lord's promise to David was, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And David's response was to prepare the kingdom, to pre prepare Solomon. David has learned his lesson, and he's participated with the Lord, and he's blessing the next generation. The church longs for finishing leaders. 
men and women who have run the race, who have humbled themselves in difficult seasons and in failures, and they bless the church. They bless the next generation. They prepare the next generation of leaders. I think the church needs to find more ways to bless and honor finishing leaders. Um, and that's actually how I would like to end, um, end today. I want to give two examples in our midst of two amazing, I would say, just beginning their finishing leader seasons of ministry. So the first one is Ann Kessler, our executive director of operations. Many of you have probably heard Ann's testimony if you've been around for a while. Um, some of you may have not. Um, by the way, I talked about these people. They, I've been given permission to share a bit of their story. Um, Ann's story includes a long battle in her life with alcoholism, with broken relationships. Ann came to Res in the early 2000s, broken and humbled and arrived, and Anne gave her life to Jesus. And then quickly, Anne gave her life to his church. And the Lord has brought incredible restoration and healing in Anne's life personally. It's hard to look back in the 2000s, early 2000s and think that that's actually the same person um, because Anne has become this pillar in the church, a spiritual mom on fire for Jesus. And the church, this church, is so incredibly strengthened by Anne's leadership to the point that uh, I think if Anne just all of a sudden disappeared, the things we'd start seeing fall apart. We wouldn't have known that Anne was even holding up in the first place. Um, and she has such incredible trust in our staff and our vestry from our people. Um, and Anne in particular invests in raising up the next generation of leaders, especially in the next generation of female leaders. It's something she just kind of does instinctively behind the scenes. My other example is Father Matt Woodley, just, just barely stepping in, right, to the beginning of his uh, finishing leadership season. Matt's told his story himself of how he arrived at Resurrection with profound heartbreak, and ministry burnout. And I, I've heard Matt say multiple times, he really thought he would never preach again when he showed up at res. But Matt turned to Jesus and to his church for healing. And those years of seasoned leadership were recognized as Matt spent time amongst us. And now the Lord is giving Matt such an incredibly uh, fruitful, fruitful season of ministry. What a blessing Matt's preaching is to our church and to our diocese. And even more so, he's training and raising up so many preachers for the next generation. I see Matt doing exactly what David was doing for Solomon at the end of his life, gathering all the gifts and resources that the, Matt, the Lord has blessed Matt with and preparing his spiritual sons and daughters for the ministry that he calls them to in the next generation. Matt and Anne both remind me and inspire me to continue on the leadership path the Lord has asked of me. 
seeking the Lord's face in every season. Like David, that man helped me, they helped me out of my internal wrestling when I'm in a difficult season. And to see the, light, the Lord's lifelong perspective in terms of the leadership he's forming in me over the course of a lifetime. And they fill me with a desire to finish well and to bless the next generation. And I think finishing well looks like David's prayer at the end of uh, 1 Chronicles, calling the next generation to seek the Lord, knowing that everything we have been given as leaders was always in the first place a gift from the Lord. So I would love to just close with this prayer from 1 Chronicles that David prays, and then I know we're out of time. I'm happy to stick around for questions, but we can also release you. So here's my, here's my closing prayer from 1 Chronicles 29, David's prayer, starting in verse 10. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Amen. All right, thanks all. Do you have anything, Amy? Yeah, I understand we went a little over, so I'm happy to, people who need to go can go, but I'm happy to interact with this question. Sophia, oh, we need the microphone, don't we? So um, David is very much a male expression of leadership. Um, and I'm wondering, um, although I know this isn't a perfect map of different seasons of leadership, right. are there ways in which um, these seasons and faith qualities and failure moments, is there something worth saying about um, how these qualities might express themselves differently um, in women leaders? One of the things that stood out to me is um, I don't see the same brand of confidence in, like, that really early youthful stage of leadership. It looks really different, at least in my experience, um, from young women leaders as it does um, from young male leaders. And if that's key in identifying leaders, that might be, um, that was something that raised the question for me. That's a really, really good question. In part, I'd be somewhat disqualified for answering aspects of it, be a great women in leadership um, question. I think that's a really, the, the one specifically about confidence kind of in that young leadership zone is a really, really good one. Um, I think it's important for an established leader who's raising up young leaders. Um, I think there's a male-female dynamic that you're naming there. I think there's probably also, in partnership with that, a personality um, dynamic. It's really important, I would even say, with young leaders to encourage a right confidence in the Lord and to name it and call it out in a young leader. 
So in, in certain cases, um, in terms of like male-female dynamic culturally or, um, or personality-wise or regardless of male and female, I think it's really important for uh, an established leader to not just look for a certain personality type, but to identify and say, I see this in you, and I call it out, and in the Lord you can be confident in it. Um, that's a really, really good point, and um, it could be, especially maybe even culturally at times, even if a, a woman might tend towards having some of that confidence, they might actually cover it a little more in a, in a social dynamic, and an established leader needs to be on the lookout for it. Um, the other thing you bring up with the male-female thing, and I can say only a little bit about because I haven't experienced it personally, but it's a really good question is the established leadership season can look very different male-female by life circumstances um, for a whole host of reasons. Um, maybe sometimes not, but maybe sometimes very much so. So I am the same age as my wife. I have the same level of education. I think we both have leadership gifts. But like the establishment of what I do as a leader and how, what leadership um, roles I have right now in my life are obviously different than hers because of other life circumstances, including our family life. Um, and I think in circumstances like that, and there could be other circumstances like this, I think there's a unique challenge in kind of stepping into years where your expertise and your growth and your gifts are established, but the opportunity might trail. And that might be unique to some um, sorts of experiences uh, that, that females have. And, and that kind of dynamic, it'd be, it'd be great to hear a, young, a mom of young children speak into that. Amy would be awesome at this. Of like, um, of, of, you know, that thing that I even mentioned in that like young leader stage of, of waiting for the Lord's timing, I think there is probably a very much a unique female experience of that reality. Um, based on at least that circumstance, if not others as, as well. Please. I, I exhausted my knowledge. Oh, sure. Can I speak to that really quick, too, just yeah. young female yeah, leaders? Um, I think often you'll see a misapplied confidence in young female women, um, and it's really like taking that confidence and directing it to the, towards the Lord like they have it, but they're kind of afraid to like step into it more, and so they'll apply it to their academic studies only or to not like pursuing kind of um, the Lord in ministry. So being able to recognize that and direct it. Also, I think when you see young female women being really able to gather others, it's not confidence in the same way that like David takes down a lion, but it is a leadership ability and a confidence in themselves of being able to gather others around a certain goal or group. So anyways, I think that's one really key thing to look for in young women. Um, yeah. This is coming from someone who's in the midst of raising four boys. And so my experience was very similar to what Steve was saying of young leader, you actually get a lot of opportunities because you don't have children yet, or as many children, I feel like each child I've had has then needed, I mean, you all have witnessed this, my hours and leadership in church have been able to go down and down or like more specific because of responsibilities at home. 
And I think the struggle for that is you are an established leader and you are not yet, you're not in the public sphere as much as you were when you were a younger leader. You're like, I'm actually a better leader now than I was when I was the full-time children's pastor or when I was beginning the, my executive pastor time. I think yeah. I'm actually a better leader now, even though I do it in a lot less time and in a lot less public way. And I don't know exactly how to phrase this, but I think we need to be able to honor that there's established women leaders that are in less public spheres. They're in more private spheres, right? Like... And it could be stay-at-home moms, it could be part-time moms, it could be working moms that aren't even in the same maybe place because of the children they've had um, or the life circumstances they've had of caring for others. And we all need to be able to recognize and honor their leadership in a different way, even though it's not public and upfront. And I think that's just a calling and an honoring we all need to be able to do, men and women both. Um, hmm. And not to say they're not established leaders. They are. Their sphere is just different. Um, so I, I'm sure if I was able to think on it more, Sophia, I would have a lot more <laughs> to say. Um, except that's also just a really joyful place to be established and running a home at the same mm -hmm. time. Um, and there's lots of very casual but influential leadership you can have in that way. Um, and a freedom of movement, actually, for a stay-at-home mom to influence lots of people because you're all over the place um, in a way that you're not always when you're at an office at a desk at the same time. So, but I'll think about that. Neff. See, so this is like a two-part question, but it's jamming off your statement about David's willingness to repent and own things and, and put that like at the forefront, like in Psalm 51, for instance. Um, so also preamble for my question is I probably more so than anyone else in this room have had ridiculous amounts of failures, comparatively speaking. Um, so I do notice that in American Christianity, at least, or evangelical Christianity in particular, the tendency is either to minimize the sin of a leader and just pretend it didn't exist or it wasn't really a sin, or to just be like, that person never should have led to begin with, mm -hmm. and we trash them and just, there's not really a path for redemption necessarily, and I understand the tension between like, the calling and qualifications for overseers and elders and deacons in tension with that we're sinners. And I know that's super messy, but I just, what would you think a healthy balance between those extremes of like, this person never should have led and this person never really made a mistake, never really sinned? That was really, 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 really good. Um, first thought that comes to mind is you started to play around with it as you were saying. I think there's a distinction between qualification for a certain office or role and redemption and restitution with the Lord and with the church. And I think perhaps 
that's the first thing to to clarify. And 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 qualifications for office, some are scriptural. I think some are going to be cultural as well. Um, but if you get into a cultural situation where what the culture is is doing is equating the two, and you're basically sin is disqualification um, in all cases, then I think, and, and there's not a redemptive process, I think, the, I think the danger you get into there is, that would be some of the reason I think you would head down the road of, of um, denying, ignoring sin in the first place, because the only response to sin is, is a form of like disqualification or excommunication. Um, so I think we have to acknowledge the reality that culturally and, and then scripturally sometimes there's, there's repercussions, um, but we also can't buy into the narrative that there isn't a redemptive process. Um, it's also probably good for a leader to get in the practice of apologizing and forgiveness this is like a marriage. It's like train yourself to learn seeking forgiveness and giving forgiveness. Um, this is what you do in your family all the time. On, on the little things as an established rhythm of life together so that you're actually prepared for the bigger, harder moments. Um, so I think, I think maybe part of it is the humble leader who has a recognition that it's part of it from the beginning. And they're seeking that with their other leaders and with their people is probably another piece of the that establishes that this is a this is a culture of forgiveness and redemption as well. That's off the top of my head. It's a really good question. It's probably its own talk, but really good. Did you have a question? You just did a little. Okay. I want to let you guys go. You probably some of you being polite. Um, happy to keep chatting. Thank you all.